Hi, this is Becca. Um, real talk, I deleted my first version of this and I cannot recover it or I didn't export it correctly or something. So this is my second attempt on a Stanton episode. I'm going to do my very best and away we go. This is Becca with Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here with our podcast to share the more scandalous and interesting sides of history and tell you about some of the people, places, and events that maybe you didn't hear about in your history class. You're going to notice that today's episode's a little bit different. It's just me just one half of the Rebecca's today. We're taking a bit of a slowdown here as we get to the end of summer. We've all been working hard on the podcast uh, since the pandemic began back in March, and uh, I think everybody needed a little bit of a slowdown. But for today, I am going to be talking about a historical figure that I love, I'm a little obsessed with, I find fascinating, a man named Edwin Stanton. Uh, Rebecca likes to tease that everything I do connects back to Lincoln, and Stanton is definitely one of those. Edwin Stanton is best remembered for being Secretary of War under President Abraham Lincoln and helping to lead the Union government to victory in the Civil War. I find Stanton just fascinating. He has a really interesting life and career. He's a very difficult person to love, and yet I love him for all his difficulties. His life story has tragedy. It has sadness, romance. It has a little bit of everything. So we're going to talk about Edwin Stanton. We're going to talk about why He's often one of the more controversial figures or I think difficult to wrap our head around figures in American history. And hopefully um, I will help you all fall a little bit more in love with him. Stanton is from Ohio. He's born in 1814. He's the oldest of four children. He'll be very close to his siblings and uh, sadly will encounter tragedy with his brothers and sisters. He'll later in life lose one brother to suicide and another sister dies while she's quite young. So he remains very close to his living uh, siblings and very close to his family. Edwin Stanton is born with terrible asthma. And in this era, you know, 1814, there's really nothing to be done. Uh, His asthma is awful. It plagues him his whole life. It makes it very difficult for him to breathe. He'll have a difficulty uh, breathing and oxygenating when he needs to. And this is really going to change the course of his life. It keeps him from a lot of physical activity. He's not able to pursue uh, a lot of outdoor activity. Uh, He's not able to take a military career later in life. And so uh, the asthma is really going to help kind of direct him to the path that he's on. Stanton grows up uh, pretty financially stable. His father was a doctor, so they were pretty solidly middle class. Uh, they have a really He has a really nice family life until his father, David, dies when Edwin is 13. So Edwin is 13 years old. His father passes away, and his family is left destitute. Uh, there's no way for his mother to make money. Uh, she spends through the savings very quickly, keeping food on the table. And his mother gets pretty desperate, so she converts the front room of their house into a general store. So the family is living in the back rooms, uh, and they sell, you know, groceries, and they sell farm goods. And uh, she even sells off some of her husband's medical supplies and medications that he left after his death. 
Edwin Stanton is a very promising student. He loves school. He's exceptionally bright and intelligent. But the truth is the family needs money. So his mother forces him out of school uh, when he's 13 to get a job. And he's going to work as a bookseller on and off for the next few years. He doesn't give up his dream of education, though. And he will apply and be accepted to Kenyon College. But he really doesn't ever finish Kenyon College. He drops in and out, in and out. And every time it's due to lack of money. It's just too hard to make enough money to help support his family and support his college career. His time at Kenyon, though, is really significant. It's going to get him interested and connected to politics. This is where he's going to join the Democratic Party of the time, but it's also where He's going to start to encounter more information about the abolitionist movement, and he's going to become a very strong opponent to slavery. So he does align himself with the Democratic Party of the era, a Jacksonian Democrat uh, after Andrew Jackson, but he's also an anti-slavery Democrat. So he's sort of uh, in this interesting intersection that some of the Midwestern Democrats find themselves. After realizing that he is just never going to have the money to finish college, he decides he needs to figure out a career, and he decides to become a lawyer. He's quite bright. He figures he has a good mind for the law. And back then, to be a lawyer, all you had to do was pass the bar. So that's what he does in 1831. So at 21 years old, he is officially a lawyer. He settles in Cadiz, Ohio, with his wife, Mary, who he is just smitten like a kitten with. Uh, He's very in love with her. Uh, They settle into a life together. He moves his sister to live with him, keeps all of his family very close, and he becomes a very prominent figure in the local community. He's a trial lawyer. He's said to be one of the very best in in Ohio. He starts getting more and more work outside of his community, but he always finds himself coming back home. Uh, He's very involved in religious organizations. His faith is very important to him and will be through his life, and he's going to start to increase his involvement in the anti-slavery movement, in particular presiding over the anti-slavery society in town. As his career continues to boom, he's going to partner with a man named Benjamin Tappan. Tappan is a lawyer and a judge, and that relationship is really going to start to kick Stanton's ambition into gear. Tappan is connected politically. Uh, He's going to get Stanton connected more politically, and Tappan will actually get elected senator from Ohio. So he is going to split his time between Ohio and Washington, D.C. Stanton benefits from this. His partner is a U.S. senator, which means their firm is getting lots and lots of work. He also gets to pick up Tappan's clients because Tappan is out, uh, you know, in D.C. senatoring. And Tappan is bringing more and more political contact to Stanton. And Stanton is starting to see that perhaps he might have a political future. Perhaps he could find himself as a judge, maybe even serving in Congress. Around this time, unfortunately, though, Stanton is going to encounter family tragedy. His wife, Mary, has two children, uh, first a daughter, Lucy, followed by a son, Edwin. Their daughter, Lucy, is going to die around 18 months old. This is devastating for Stanton. Lucy is very ill the last six months of her life. And Stanton, who is really at this peak of his career, this chance to really break out and pursue his ambitions, puts that all aside to be with his family. He is by Lucy's bedside all summer long. He barely leaves the house. Uh, And when Lucy dies, he is just devastated. Two years later, another tragedy befalls the family. His beloved wife, Mary, falls ill and dies just seven years after their wedding. 
Mary's death is a major blow to Edwin Stanton. His sorrow was described as verging on insanity. He is devastated. He becomes a shell of the person he once was. Uh, for several months, even his young son, Edwin, seems to be worried about him, uh, recounting later in life that his father would wake up in the middle of the night and frantically search the house looking for Mary. Uh, he even insists uh, that when it comes time to bury Mary, that uh, the undertaker work for hours and hours and hours to make her look exactly the way she did on their wedding day. Friends who were close to Stanton said that Mary's death is an event that ages him 30 years and that uh, he goes from being uh, a relatively young man in his 30s to looking as though he's in his 50s or 60s. Despite all of these tragedies, Stanton's career is still continuing to climb, though. He's finding himself taking on bigger and bigger cases, and he's going to get a case that's going to bring him some national attention. He is going to take on the case of Caleb C. McNulty. Caleb McNulty was the clerk of the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., and as often the case with people uh, who find themselves in these co uh, politically connected jobs, Caleb McNulty gets himself into a little bit of trouble. He is going to be charged with embezzling thousands and thousands of dollars. At the time, it was something like $45,000 in the 1840s, you can imagine, was just massive amounts of money. Of course, He's going to need a really good lawyer, and Benjamin Tappan is going to suggest that Edwin Stanton represent Caleb McNulty. This is basically a foregone conclusion in the mind of the press. Everybody thinks McNulty is guilty. Uh, this is a huge crime. It's a huge amount of money. And Stanton really has no defense. Uh, so he is going to have to orchestrate a pretty clever one. He is going to research and dig deep into every step of the process along the way. He's going to employ obscure technicalities and dazzle the courtroom by managing to get multiple motions passed that ultimately lead to the dropping of all charges against McNulty. It is legal maneuvering at its best. It astounds people and it gets Edwin Stanton's name in the papers everywhere. Uh, everyone had just assumed McNulty would be found guilty and quickly sentenced. And now there's this hotshot lawyer who somehow managed to get him off. So people start to get very curious about Edwin Stanton. It's a huge boon for his law firm. He gets so much work uh, that he's going to relocate his family to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to be more centrally located for his law firm. And when he is in Pittsburgh, he is going to face the biggest case of his life. This is a big one. It is the state of Pennsylvania versus Wheeling and Belmont Bridge Company. So to understand this case a little bit, the state of Pennsylvania is suing Wheeling and Belmont Bridge Company, which is located, headquartered in Virginia. This is a case that is going to go before the Supreme Court, and it's, it's interesting. It all has to do with the Wheeling Suspension Bridge. At the time of the case, the Wheeling Suspension Bridge was the biggest suspension bridge in the world. Um, so, you know, it spanned like a thousand feet or so. So pretty darn big. Uh, it goes across the Ohio River and essentially connects uh, Pennsylvania to Wheeling, what is now West Virginia, but at the time, Virginia. So it spans across the Ohio River. The bridge is long and it's really tall. But back in this era with these ships, they still had the really, really, really tall smokestacks. 
So even with a bridge as tall as the Wheeling Suspension Bridge, many ships weren't able to navigate uh, underneath the bridge. So what was happening is many of the biggest ships and the biggest bits of cargo and trade were rerouting to Wheeling, which at this time is still part of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So the state of Pennsylvania is pretty angry about this. They feel that they're losing out on a ton of important trade and commerce, and they are suing this bridge company. Stanton is going to be called to be part of the state of Pennsylvania's uh, legal team, and he is going to get to argue this case before the Supreme Court. Here's the thing about arguing before the Supreme Court. The movies will have you believe that you get tons of time to give these big pronouncements, and that's not usually what happens. Usually it's the justices grilling you, and you have a short amount of time to answer their questions, hopefully in your favor. So Stanton decides, you know what? I got to do something clever and something big because I'm not going to have a lot of time when I'm actually in the courtroom. And he stages a massive stunt before uh, he has to go to argue the case. He's going to get a big steamship called Hypernia. And this steamship is going to make its way down the Ohio River towards the bridge. And when it gets to the bridge, it's going to keep going. And its 85-foot tall smokestack is going to smash into the bridge, causing damage to both the bridge and the ship, and of course, garnering a ton of press attention. This gambit is going to work for Stanton. The Supreme Court is ultimately going to rule in their favor, ordering that the bridge be raised. So the state of Pennsylvania and Edwin Stanton are very happy. The Wheeling and Belmont Bridge Company is not. And they're going to do something uh, that you was probably not too surprised that a corporation would do. They're going to basically grease the wheels in Congress, spend a little money, lobby some members of Congress, and within a few days, Congress will pass a bill basically saying the bridge's current height is permissible and that bill will override the Supreme Court. Stanton is disgusted by this. He's completely disgruntled. Uh, he believes strongly in the checks and balances and he feels that the Supreme Court justices, the judiciary, they're sort of untouched by lobbyists and money and corporate influence. And to see Congress override uh, their ruling is really upsetting to him. So he's going to start to have a distaste for the perhaps legislative side of things and a newfound respect for the judicial. And this is around the time that he starts to consider that perhaps serving on the United States Supreme Court might be the ideal job for him. Around this time period, too, Edwin Stanton falls in love again. He is going to remarry a young woman named Ellen Hutchinson. It is a little bit of an eyebrow raiser. There's a 16-year age difference. He's 41 at the time they remarry. Uh, he remarries. She is 26. Now, that's a big age difference, but uh, at 26 in this era, she's considered a mature woman, uh, and so she really has fallen in love with him, and Stanton would say throughout his life that he couldn't believe how lucky he had gotten to fall in love again and to find such a wonderful companion uh, a second time around. So it's really, uh, it's hard to imagine him if you look at photographs with this long beard and this intense face, but he's really quite a romantic when it comes to both of his marriages, and he and Ellen, by all accounts, are quite happy. They're going to honeymoon in Niagara and then settle in Washington, D.C. At this point, he's really enjoying the vibe in D.C. He wants to continue to argue cases before the Supreme Court. He wants to stay connected to the judicial um, process, and he's an ambitious guy, and he's seeing that there might be some possibilities for him politically. Around this time, we have a new president, President James Buchanan. 
Stanton is part of Buchanan's Democratic Party, and he's gotten quite close to the Attorney General, Jeremiah Black. Black is going to actually suggest Stanton for a job out West, uh, basically handling some cases on behalf of the U.S. government and President Buchanan. This would be a big boon to Stanton's career, but he and his wife, Ellen, have just had a daughter, Eleanor, and he is very hesitant to leave. Losing a daughter already, having lost his wife, He's really worried about what might happen if he goes away. Ellen has been sick on and off, so Stanton puts off this job for several months. He keeps declining and declining, uh, sort of pushing back, pushing back. And finally, once Ellen has recovered, uh, Ellen tells him to go. And so he does. He goes out west for several months, leaving behind his new bride and an infant alone in Washington, D.C. This is hard for him. He is a family man. He loves his family. But... It's also really exciting. He's out West. He's handling big, flashy cases. He's um, negotiating on behalf of the United States government. And he's really seeing his star rise. And he's seeing himself being elevated in the national conversation. And when he comes back to Washington, D.C., he's a little bit disappointed. He's sort of back in D.C. And he doesn't have anything exciting to work on until 1859. In 1859, a massively scandalous crime, will rock Washington, D.C., and Edwin Stanton is going to be called in to handle the case. We have said on this podcast several times already that we're going to cover this more in depth, so I'll just have that caveat again. But I'm talking about a man named Daniel Sickles. Daniel Sickles is a congressman from New York, and he has committed a crime. He has shot and killed a man named Philip Barton Key in Lafayette Square Park. This is right outside of Sickles' home and just a few feet away from the White House. Now, Philip Barton Key may not be a name that's super familiar to our listeners. That's fine. Uh, You probably know his father, Francis Scott Key. Francis Scott Key wrote The Star-Spangled Banner, our national anthem. But more importantly, really for Sickles, Philip Barton Key was the district attorney of the District of Columbia. So Sickles, a congressman, had shot the city's DA. This was over an affair that Philip Barton Key was alleged to be having with Sickles' wife, Teresa. Now, to be clear, Daniel Sickles committed quite a bit of adultery himself, but naturally, uh, when he discovers that his wife has been unfaithful, he grows angry, he entraps Philip Barton Key, and shoots him in cold blood. Now, once this happens, Daniel Sickles realizes... He's a congressman. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. And he turns himself over to the attorney general, Jeremiah Black. Uh, Black, of course, has been working very closely with Edwin Stanton. Stanton has been working closely with the attorney general in the Department of Justice, um, as it exists back then. And uh, some people even thought that Stanton was the assistant attorney general. That's how much time Stanton spent with Black. So Black is going to sort of immediately suggests that Stanton should be part of Sickles' defense team. And he is going to be solicited hard to join that defense team. They really want Stanton. His brilliant legal mind is what they want to put to work. This should be a pretty clear-cut case. Sickles did it. There are witnesses. There's no question about the fact that he committed this crime. What the prosecution wants to argue is that this crime is not unique. Sickles uh, had many affairs himself, so his wife's own infidelity would have nothing to do with the incident, but rather this is a pattern of behavior for Sickles. The judge will disallow this uh, line of reasoning, basically saying that the affairs of Sickles are inadmissible. It's really his wife's infidelity that matters. So the prosecution has to kind of turn its focus to just focusing on the heinous nature of the crime. 
Edwin Stanton is going to see the defense as a little different. He's going to see this as defending a man's right to protect his marriage. And he's going to have the defense argue that Daniel Sickles kills Philip Barton Key not being of sound mind and body, but rather in a fit of temporary insanity driven crazy by his wife's infidelity. Stanton's closing remarks are uh, really exciting. They're quoted in the newspaper. Stanton would get up and shout that marriage is sacred and a man should have the right to defend his marriage against those who choose to defile the purity of the sacrament. And people cheer and applaud in the courtroom. And the jury goes away and they come back an hour later. The jury agrees that Daniel Sickles is not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. That's the first time in the United States that this has been used successfully in a court of law. Uh, and it's huge for Stanton. It absolutely puts him just on the map. This was a huge trial. Uh, there was just celebrity involved all around. And Stanton is right in the middle of it. During this time, too, uh, while Stanton is continuing to see himself just boom professionally, the nation is facing one of its greatest trials. The country is continuing to splinter over the issue of slavery. The fall election in 1860 with Abraham Lincoln becoming president-elect spurs several southern states to call for secession, and President James Buchanan doesn't really know what to do. Buchanan has done nothing but acquiesce to the South the entire time, but secession is an issue that's hard to support. And Buchanan is struggling. So he's going to ask the Attorney General, Jeremiah Black, to help him deal with this. And Black is going to go to his right-hand man, Edwin Stanton, and the two of them are going to write a strongly worded letter denouncing secession from the union and laying out the illegality of it. So really laying out why the actions of these southern states are illegal. This is, of course, going to cause tension in the South, and it's going to cause Buchanan's cabinet to completely fracture. Buchanan is going to lose cabinet members who feel that he's not being supportive enough of the South, Black will be promoted to Secretary of State, and Edwin Stanton finds himself Attorney General. So Stanton is in Buchanan's cabinet towards the end of the of Buchanan's administration. It's really fascinating to me because, yes, Stanton is technically a Democrat, but he's so fervently anti-slavery, whereas Buchanan is sort of so noncommittal about it that it's sort of amazing to me that he can work with him at all. And yet Stanton sees this position as kind of a... Um, a wall, right? He's a barrier to keep Buchanan from letting the South completely run wild. Things are heating up in South Carolina in particular. Uh, there are federal troops in Charleston Harbor. South Carolina has written its um, secession documents. It is uh, asking federal troops to leave. It is you know, basically demanding from President Buchanan that federal troops be removed. And Black and Stanton hold against that. They threaten President Buchanan with resignation if he gives in to South Carolina's demands. And that's about the only thing that keeps Buchanan from doing that. So he sort of reluctantly agrees to keep troops there, reluctantly agrees to keep the federal government involved. And I think without Stanton and Black, that might not have happened. Now, um, this brings us, of course, to the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. Buchanan will end his uh, presidency on a very low note. Lincoln will be inaugurated in March of 1861, and we have a new president. Stanton and Lincoln already knew each other 
by 1861. Their relationship went back to 1857. Both men were lawyers, and in 1857, Lincoln actually hires Stanton and two associates to help him represent a company being sued over a patent dispute. Now, Stanton is certainly the more senior lawyer, but Lincoln had been the local lawyer on the case, but then there was a change of venue, and when the venue changed, Lincoln really felt like he needed assistance from a man like Stanton. There are various accounts of what their working relationship was like on this case, but what we do know is that Stanton basically pushes Lincoln out of having any real role in the trial. We know that he insults him, that he denigrates him, and frankly, he doesn't find Lincoln very useful. Stanton is quoted as saying, where did that long-armed creature come from and what can he expect to do in this case? Now, how Lincoln reacted to Stanton has been written about in numerous ways. It's hard to know for sure what Lincoln thought. Uh, I certainly believe Lincoln found Stanton to be rude and abrasive, but he's also quite inspired by Stanton's brilliant legal work, by the way that he views this case, by the way that he has an understanding of the law. Lincoln is uh, documented as being enraptured by Stanton's uh, work in the courtroom, watching him talk and speak and give arguments. Um, so I think what we see in 1857 is the beginning of what's going to be a very interesting relationship. Stanton is a difficult man. He's a man who doesn't seem to think very highly of Lincoln, who really certainly believes he's smarter and better uh, than Lincoln. And then you have Lincoln who sees a man who is difficult and abrasive and obnoxious and yet works hard, who has a brilliant mind and who's willing to do the tough work. And so this will be something that Lincoln isn't going to forget. Naturally, though, when he's putting together his cabinet, he's not going to ask uh, Stanton, who is a Democrat and was in Buchanan's cabinet, to be in his. So Stanton is sort of shunted out of political life. However, uh, Stanton does stick around in Washington, D.C., and he does spend some time helping transition the new attorney general into the role. So he believes in that continuity of government, and he spends time helping the new attorney general transition. And over that time, he starts to become friendly with the new Secretary of War, Simon Cameron. Lincoln uh, appoints Cameron to be Secretary of War, and let me tell you, that was like a losing job from the beginning. Uh, the War Department is a mess. There was no preparation made by Buchanan, uh, Buchanan's government for this impending war. So Cameron comes into a department that's in shambles. Uh, Congress is no help. And Cameron is just going to be a battering ram or a punching bag for the press. He's going to take heat uh, over the first battle of Manassas, which is a deeply bloody encounter. Uh, the Union forces ultimately retreat from Manassas. And the press just completely lambast Cameron for his mishandling of the whole thing. He's going to ask Edwin Stanton to advise him to help him be better at his job. And Stanton will become an ear for Cameron. Around this time, Cameron is asked to give a report to Congress about the status of the War Department and their plans for this war. And in this report, Cameron adds a call to arm slaves, which was a very controversial position even in 1861. Stanton is not afraid of controversy. He goes even further and he demands that enslaved people be armed. He, he basically argues that this is what they're fighting for. They're fighting to end slavery. Why not let the people who are most harmed by this institution fight for their own freedom? Abraham Lincoln is not ready to have that conversation. He is not ready to confront this controversy, controversy and he removes it from the document. And guys, Washington, D.C., 
1861 is not that different from Washington, D.C. in 2020. What happens next is classic politics. The revised version with Lincoln's edits goes to Congress. They get the version that doesn't have anything controversial in it. But the unrevised version with Stanton's strong call for arming enslaved people gets leaked to the press. And now it's a total press disaster. Lincoln looks weak on slavery. Um, he's being criticized by Republicans who already think that he's not radical enough, that he's not progressive enough, doesn't take action enough. Cameron looks like an idiot, like someone who can't make a decision or stand up to the president. And it all just becomes a mess. And Lincoln knows Cameron has to go. Cameron also knows that he cannot stay in this position, but he refuses to leave without knowing who is going to succeed him. And at this point, there's only really one man in Washington who can do this job, and it's clearly Edwin Stanton. So Lincoln will appoint Stanton as Secretary of War. He inherits a disaster. The War Department was called a lunatic asylum. It's an absolute mess. Uh, Stanton throws himself into whipping it in shape. He's going to go to Congress. He's going to get Congress back on the side of the War Department, get funding for the War Department. He's going to, you know, clean house, dismiss people, shuffle the department heads. And then he's going to focus on two major areas of improvement and infrastructure, transportation and communication. These are going to be vital for the war effort. There is no way that a sustained war is going to be one without those. Stanton says early into his term that they weren't really fighting a war by the time he becomes Secretary of War. They had been playing at war, and he's not here to play. He's here to get things done. So he's going to expand a rail network. He's going to add massive telegraph uh, infrastructure, and he's going to make sure that the War Department is the center of all this flow uh, of information, and that's going to be really, really important. This is going to put Stanton at... Um, opposition to General George McClellan, who uh, at the beginning of this war is the general for the Union forces. And he is a man of inaction for a lot of this time. And Lincoln really, really struggles with McClellan, so much so that he goes over McClellan's head and he appoints Stanton as general in chief, which angers McClellan. It basically makes McClellan subordinate to the Secretary of War, which is not exactly how this is supposed to work. And McClellan is really going to have it out for Stanton. He's going to call Stanton the vilest man I ever knew. And he's going to do everything he can to blame every single mistake he has on Stanton. And this works in the press. Stanton sort of becomes uh, the whipping boy. Uh, the press will act as though Edwin Stanton is the only thing keeping George McClellan from clear and present victory over the Confederate Army, which is nonsense, to say the least. Stanton goes through all of this. He takes it all. Um, it's tough for him. He considers resigning, but he knows that no one else is going to stick it out. He knows that no one else can do this job, and he does it for Lincoln. He believes that Lincoln needs a strong Secretary of War, and that is going to be him. The Lincoln and Stanton relationship is fascinating. These two men could not have been more different in personality. They certainly uh had differences of opinion on a lot of things, and yet they're kind of perfectly matched and balanced. Lincoln has the sense of humor, the humility. He's able to put his ego aside to deal with Stanton, and Stanton uh, is able to be kind of the bad. It's like a bad cop, good cop often. There's a really good exchange that I like that I think really illustrates how Lincoln was able to deal with Stanton's intensity. Uh, there was a congressman named Owen Lovejoy. He had gone to the president trying to get an order to exchange some soldiers in order to basically 
get a job done. So he's looking to just shuffle um, some soldiers around. President says, sounds good, gives the order, and he tells Congressman Lovejoy to take it over to the War Department next door, give it to Edwin Stanton. Stanton looks at the order. Lovejoy explains the whole thing. And Stanton says, absolutely not. And Lovejoy says, no, 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 the president gave us the order. And Stanton's like, he gave you this order? You sure? Yeah, absolutely. And Stanton goes, then he is a damned fool. And Lovejoy is shocked. You mean you're telling you're telling me that the president is a damned fool? And Stanton's like, yeah, if he gave you that order, he's a damned fool. The congressman can't believe it. You're not supposed to talk about the president of the United States that way. So he does what any good politician would do, and he runs back to the White House, and he tells Lincoln exactly what Stanton said. And Lincoln listens to this, bemused, and he says, did Stanton say I was a damned fool? Owen says, absolutely. I couldn't believe it. I stood up for you. I can't believe he said that. And the president takes a moment. And then he simply just says, if Stanton said I was a damned fool, then I must be one, for he is nearly always right, and generally he says what he means. And that's how Lincoln dealt with Edwin Stanton. He let the insults, he let the the criticism kind of roll off his back. Uh, And Stanton was highly, highly critical of Lincoln. He called Lincoln the original gorilla, the ape, uh, the long-armed creature, just mocked him mercilessly. He did not think very highly of Lincoln, particularly early into Lincoln's presidency. He thought this war was not winnable. He thought that the Union didn't have what it needed to win. And he thought that there was no doubt that the capital city of Washington, D.C. would fall early into the war. And he criticized Lincoln, his abilities, his intellect, even when he becomes Secretary of War. Despite all of that, though, um, there's sort of this begrudging respect that Stanton starts to build for Lincoln when he sees the dedication that Lincoln puts into his job, his his sort of non, non-stop work on the Civil War. That's something the two of them share. Lincoln really admires Stanton's um, dedication to work, his tireless industry. Uh, he will go to the War Department frequently, frequently to go to the telegraph office. And several times he finds Stanton sleeping on a couch in the telegraph office. Stanton wouldn't go home at night. He would stay there. Lincoln said once, I do not see how he survives. Without him, I should be destroyed. He performs his tasks superhumanly. The two men are going to sadly bond too over a similar tragedy. In 1862, Lincoln will lose his 11-year-old son, Willie. Uh, He'll fall ill and die in his White House bedroom. Five months later, Stanton loses another child, his son James, as an infant. So in 1862, these two men who disagree on things and bicker and argue and and sort of have these these difficulties find themselves sharing a very similar loss and pain. And that's a turning point in their relationship. They connect over sharing a loss of a child and grieving uh, these terrible losses. Lincoln is also a savvy politician. He knows that being a commander-in-chief, a wartime president, means sometimes doing things that are difficult and not popular. And Lincoln uses Stanton to carry out some of the uglier sides of the Civil War. He's described, um, Lincoln's relationship to Stanton is described sometimes as Stanton being the tip of the spear. So when Lincoln has to do something maybe a little unsavory, maybe a little bit legally questionable, he has Stanton do it through the War war Department. Stanton has that brilliant legal mind. He has the ability to look for loopholes and to look for ways around 
ways around uh, perhaps what is considered right or ethical. So Stanton, sometimes uh, described as being a little duplicitous or deceitful, actually is useful when that's needed for the war. Uh, some of these are... Um, utilizing elements of martial law under the guise of kind of national security. Of course, the suspension of habeas corpus during the Civil War and the pretty extensive use of military commissions to prosecute civilians during the war. So Lincoln sees also a practical use to Stanton's uh, maybe uh, uglier sides of his personality. Stanton also is going to use his power and his influence to get what he wants. Uh, when it comes to Lincoln and the war, Stanton really pushes, particularly for African-American soldiers, to let African-Americans serve, to let them have full status equal to other other Union soldiers. He even pushes for equal pay, which was uh, not a popular position, particularly in Congress at the time. Uh, and he's very critical of white officers that um, push back against arming African-Americans or don't treat uh, the African-American troops the way that they should. So Stanton uh, is really going to push Lincoln, particularly when it comes to being clear about what this war is about. Now, this is going to be a long and uh, intense war for all involved, and it's going to weigh on Lincoln and Stanton heavily. Stanton is going to sacrifice his health during the war. He's going to work himself almost to death. Uh, as we approach 1865, Stanton is in really poor shape. He's considering resigning um, as it becomes clear that the Union Army is likely to win. And in April of 1865, when the Union capital of Richmond finally falls, Stanton sort of sees perhaps an opening. Uh, the war is going to wind down. This would be a time that he can step away. And he wants to celebrate in style the end of what he sees as the end of the war. So he orders candles to be burned in every window of every building the Department of War owns. And he orders the playing of the national anthem outside of the War Department. And Stanton is so moved by this celebration that he gives an impromptu teary speech, which is so unlike him. Uh, when he showed emotion, it was almost always the emotion of anger or frustration and very rarely sort of naked emotion that involved tears. So many people the War Department who witnessed this really saw the more human side of, of Stanton. Stanton goes to talk to Lincoln when Lincoln comes back from visiting Richmond uh, to talk about really leaving his position, knowing now that Union victory is almost a done deal. Uh, but Lincoln tells him, you can't go. Reconstruction will be the real fight. Lincoln knows that it's going to be tough to reconcile the nation, bring the country back together, to implement equality and, and equity the way it needs to be. And he needs Stanton for that. And he's going to tell Edwin Stanton, it is my wish and the country's that you remain in this post. And so Stanton is already getting a sense at this point that he's not going to be able to walk away from this job easily. Even when other cabinet members criticized him, even when people got upset about the way Stanton did things, Lincoln always came to his defense. Lincoln once said to his cabinet, Stanton is the rock on the beach of our national ocean, against which the breakers dash and roar, dash and roar without ceasing. He fights back the angry waters and prevents them from undermining and overwhelming the land. Gentlemen, I do not see how he survives why he is not crushed and torn to pieces. Without him, I should be destroyed. So we really see how Lincoln sees Stanton as the man who is, is keeping the country together and helping Lincoln shoulder this incredible burden. 
And that brings us to the fateful day of April 14, 1865. Now, Edwin Stanton was invited to join President Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater that night. He declines uh, for health reasons, for exhaustion reasons, and frankly, for reasons of national security. Stanton has felt all four years of this war, that Lincoln is too cavalier about his safety, that there are real threats to the president of the United States that exist, and he doesn't think it's a good idea for Lincoln to be out and about. In fact, Stanton is going to forbid several people who work under him from accepting the invitation to join Lincoln. He's hoping that if no one will go with Lincoln, Lincoln will perhaps give up on going to the theater that night. Edwin Stanton leaves the War Department, crosses Lafayette Square Park, and he pays a visit to his friend, William Seward, the Secretary of State. William Seward had been in a carriage accident the previous week. Stanton stops by, chats with Seward for a little while before he heads home and retires for the evening. He is in his bedroom when he hears his wife, Ellen, yelling from downstairs, Mr. Seward is murdered. Stanton is shocked as he had just been at Seward's home, but he quickly realizes that this must be big. It must be connected to the uh, surrender of Robert E. Lee. It must be connected to the end of the Civil War. He's going to rush to Seward's home, and it's at William Seward's home that Stanton learns of the attack on Lincoln. At this point, Stanton springs into action. He orders all cabinet members and their homes to be guarded. He puts a lockdown on the city, and he rushes over to Ford's Theater to see the president. He gets to the Peterson boarding house, and when he sees Lincoln himself, he knows uh, what everyone else there already knows. The president is not going to survive this. Edwin Stanton is personally devastated, but he does not have time for that in the moment. This is where his ability to sort of compartmentalize emotionally is very useful. He is going to take control of the moment. His domineering persona is perfect for the situation because it is unprecedented. Nobody knows what to do. And he is going to take over essentially the function of all government work that night. He's going to collect testimony. He's going to organize the remaining government officials. He's locking down the city. He's stopping all rail traffic south. He's stopping all boat traffic on the Potomac to keep people from coming ashore. While Lincoln lays dying, he sort of alternates between being by the bedside of this man he's grown very, very close to and a man uh, who he will mourn deeply and also getting to work to do what he can to protect the country, protect the capital city, and protect the Union government. I love a description of him sort of after the fact where someone said he didn't announce he was in charge. He just was in charge. That was just who Stanton was. He took control that night and frankly kept the country together at a moment where panic and chaos and fear could have ripped everything apart. After Lincoln's death, it is Stanton who utters the immortal words, now he belongs to the ages. Those are the words inscribed at Lincoln's tomb today in Springfield. Shortly after that fateful day, Lincoln's aide, John Hay, writes Edwin Stanton and says this, Not everyone knows, as I do, how close you stood to our lost leader, how we loved you and trusted you, and how vain were all the efforts to shake that trust and confidence, not lightly given and never withdrawn. So Edwin Stanton is dealing with the loss of a person who's become an exceptionally close friend. He is dealing with the manhunt and uh, 
prosecution of the people involved in this conspiracy. He is dealing with this military commission. He is dealing with the execution of these criminals. And now he is dealing with a new man in the White House, Andrew Johnson. Johnson had been Lincoln's vice president. And Stanton doesn't know Johnson, and he certainly doesn't trust him. Johnson had been added to Lincoln's ticket when he ran for re-election in 1864. Johnson is a pro-war Democrat, and he becomes president And all of Lincoln's cabinet at this point are Republicans. All of them are quite loyal to Lincoln, and they don't know what to make of Johnson. So Stanton had had every intention of retiring from this job. He was absolutely in terrible health. He was financially uh, at the end of his rope. He really needed to go back into the private sector to make money, but he did not feel safe leaving his post as Secretary of War while there are still troops fighting in the field, while we're still dealing with the reunification of the country. And he didn't feel comfortable leaving that up to this man, Andrew Johnson. And uh, Stanton does pretty much everything in his power to make it difficult for uh, Andrew Johnson. So Stanton is really out there undermining him. Uh, One of the ways that they do this is something called the Tenure of Office Act. The Tenure of Office Act is a federal law that basically was meant to kind of restrict the power of the president from removing certain office holders without approval of the Senate. This is um, a little tricky because the whole point is that the president gets to appoint his cabinet members and they get approved by the Senate. But then, you know, if the president wants to get rid of a cabinet member, they can ask them for resignation or remove them. And this is basically put into place to keep Johnson from shuffling up Lincoln's cabinet. And it's done to secure Edwin Stanton's job. And Johnson doesn't like it at all. And Johnson is frustrated by all of this. So he tries to remove Stanton from office twice. Stanton refuses. And when I say he refuses to be removed from office, it's not just that Stanton refuses to be removed from office as Secretary of War. He refuses to literally leave his office. He barricades himself at the War Department. He will not leave. Um, Even though Johnson is constantly trying to force him out, he is just like, I am here. I will not move. I am implacable. And his wife starts to even get frustrated. Poor Ellen Stanton is out on the street yelling at her husband about what a fool he is, what it's an embarrassment. It's a big scene, but it works. Stanton is going to use this situation to help orchestrate the impeachment of Andrew Johnson in the House of Representatives. It's the first time a president will be impeached in the House. And there's questions about whether or not um, Johnson actually had violated the Tenure of Office Act because um, all of the wording of this was very murky. But Andrew Johnson is not particularly popular in the House of Representatives, and they are eager to have an opportunity to try to remove Johnson from office. So he's impeached by the House. It moves to a vote in the Senate. And Johnson had served in the Senate, and he has friends there. And so the Senate vote fails to convict him by one vote. So Johnson narrowly escapes in full impeachment by the Senate here. And uh, Stanton is forced out for real. Stanton is forced to leave his job as Secretary of War. Now, this all happens under a pretty scandalous thing, but there's no real backlash for Stanton. He leaves office very popular in the Republican Party at this point, but also very popular with the general public. He is seen As the man who helped to win the Civil War, a man who Lincoln trusted, a man who is fighting for 
reconstruction and for the the sort of equitable reconstruction of this country. And so he leaves very, very popular. And almost immediately, there is pressure on Edwin Stanton to run for office. People want him to run for Senate. They want him to run um, perhaps on the state level as governor. So there's a lot of pressure to put Stanton into public office, but he is in no condition to do so. His health is terrible. He's having trouble walking, trouble breathing, trouble talking, and he really has depleted his funds. Uh, He had done very well for himself financially as a lawyer before getting into public service, but he takes a pay cut to be in the public sector, to be Secretary of War, and so he really needs to make money. So he goes back to the law. He tries to focus on his law career, but the election of 1868 is going to call him into action. 1868, Ulysses S. Grant is running for president. Grant wants Stanton to be a surrogate for his campaign, to campaign for him in Ohio, and to help elect Republicans to kind of sweep into Congress. So Stanton can't refuse. He goes out there and he campaigns day after day after day for Grant and for other members of the Republican Party. His doctors beg him not to. They are convinced that the speeches aggravate his asthma. They think that he's just pushing himself too far. But Stanton doesn't stop until Grant is elected. After the election of 1868, Stanton is on his deathbed. Truly, he cannot leave his bedroom All of his work is done at home. Uh, All of his work is brought to his bedroom. His family celebrates Christmas of 1868 in his bedroom, convinced that this will be the last Christmas he will ever live to see. Early 1869, Stanton writes his will. He makes financial preparations for his wife and children, and he just sort of prepares himself for death. And February goes by, and March goes by, and April goes by, and May goes by, and Stanton doesn't die. Um, He gets better. I think just resting was honestly kind of good for him. He remarkably improves in the spring. And around this time, rumors are starting to fly that the Supreme Court Justice Robert Cooper Greer is going to retire from the Supreme Court. And Stanton thinks about all the jobs he's ever wanted in his life. And the only one he's ever truly desired that has been, you know, something that he's wanted more than anything is to be a Supreme Court justice. And even though Stanton knows that he's not in great shape, uh, even though he knows that uh, there are people who are going to want him to do other things, uh, run for office and whatnot, he really wants this job. And so he decides to let Grant know That even though in 1868, after the election, he told everybody he would not accept a job in the Grant administration, that he was out of politics, he decides to let Grant know that in the case of a Supreme Court justice seat, Stanton would be more than willing to accept. And he sends a surrogate to Washington, D.C. to petition Grant on his behalf. And when people realize in the city that Stanton is angling for the seat, Everybody comes out of the woodwork. Members of Congress, members of Lincoln's cabinet, Grant is inundated with petitions on behalf of Stanton's nomination. And so Grant has no choice, really. Uh, Grant decides to nominate Edwin Stanton for the Supreme Court. 
The nomination comes on December 19th, 1869, which happens to be Edwin Stanton's 55th birthday. So kind of the best birthday gift ever. Stanton is exceptionally popular in the Senate, and he is confirmed very quickly by a vote just a couple of days later. So he's nominated and confirmed. All that's left is for Stanton to be sworn in and to take his seat on the court. That will happen uh, in the new year after the holiday. On December 23rd of 1869, Edwin Stanton wakes up that morning complaining of incredible pain in his neck, spine, and head. He's having trouble breathing. He's having trouble talking. Asthma has restricted his lung um, passages so much at this point that he's gasping for breath. He'll be in torment, really, for about the next 24 hours, and he will die on December 24th on Christmas Eve. So, in fact, he does not live to see Christmas Day of 1869. It's so tragic to me. He is so close to his dream job, but because he was never sworn in, we cannot say that Edwin Stanton served on the United States Supreme Court because he didn't. So he never was a Supreme Court justice. He got so close, but doesn't actually get there. His death is is a huge event. Uh, Grant wants to have a big state funeral, but Edwin Stanton's widow, Ellen, refuses. Stanton had initially been raised a Quaker early on. He had a Quaker upbringing, uh, becomes Methodist and then Episcopalian. But Ellen and Stanton had talked about it uh, while he was still alive, and he didn't want a big fuss, a big to-do. He wanted something simple, something rooted in his faith, which had remained really important to him. Uh, Grant does everything he can, though. Grant orders all federal offices to be closed. He orders all government buildings to be draped in mourning cloth, and Grant makes it very clear that if you are a member of his government, you are expected to be at Stanton's funeral. So Edwin Stanton has a massive funeral in Washington, D.C. Everyone is there, the president, the vice president, members of the House, Senate, cabinet, on and on and on. And then his casket is placed in a horse-drawn caisson and takes him to his final resting place of Oak Hill Cemetery in Georgetown. If you go to Oak Hill Cemetery today, which we highly recommend, he is still laid to rest there, uh, not too far from the front gate. That is Edwin Stanton. That is the life and tragedy, really, of Stanton. And I just find him fascinating because he's really hard to pigeonhole. He is a figure that when you read about him, you can read, um, you know, the writings of one person like Seward and then read the writings of somebody else like John Hay and you'll read two completely different types of people in some ways or two completely readings of Stanton and uh, everyone just sort of agreed even at the time that he was an enigma he could be so dislikable he could be so terrible and yet he worked so hard for the country he put his ego and ambition aside to help win the civil war he could be um someone who everyone respected, but then people also really just didn't like him. So he had the respect of many, but he wasn't the kind of guy you wanted to have a dinner with. Uh, He could be very, very competitive and very ambitious. And yet he was very much a team player in the Lincoln cabinet and often could sublimate himself when he needed to. He could be deceitful and duplicitous uh, in his business practices. People uh, describe him as being deceitful, almost in an artful way. And yet that is also, in many ways, simply being lawyerly and what made him such a brilliant legal mind. One uh, description of Stanton like, really lays out these uh, the duality of him. It was easy to dislike Stanton. 
He could be rude and overbearing. He did not suffer fools or bores gladly, but he could be charming and courtly, and he could be embarrassingly deferential if it served his purposes. Energetic, forceful, personally honest, a prodigious worker, and a master of detail, Stanton was supremely confident of his own ability to cope with any problem. And that's what we see over and over and over again um, throughout his life. And when I think back to, I think, in 55 years, what he accomplished is phenomenal, and yet he still dies relatively so young. Uh, And I I wonder what might have happened if he had been on the court in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, if he had been a voice that could have been there uh, through Reconstruction, could have been there uh, as we sort of see race relations evolving in the second half of the 19th century, uh, Stanton's legacy could perhaps be um, different today if we had had him there. So that is Edwin Stanton, a man that I love. I love to talk about him. A true story, like maybe the sixth or seventh date I went on with the man who is now my husband, Matt, um, over, over mimosas. He asked who my favorite historical figure was. And I said Edwin Stanton. And I basically told him this whole story uh, that you guys have just listened to. Hopefully you have had a mimosa to enjoy it with. I think that makes it easier. But uh, talking about Stanton to me is just super fun. Now, there are a few places in Washington, D.C. where you can uh, get Stanton uh, legacy today. Uh, First and foremost, Oak Hill Cemetery. You can visit his gravesite at Oak Hill. It's very close to the Renwick Chapel near the front of the cemetery. Uh, We offer tours with free tours by foot of Oak Hill Cemetery private tours for the time being. Uh, So if you're interested, be sure to reach out to us. Also, as a little preview, we're going to be doing an episode in October that digs into Oak Hill Cemetery and its history. And we'll talk about uh, the poeticness, the poetry of having Stanton laid to rest there. But I don't want to spoil that for now. Another place that you can find Stanton and his legacy is, of course, Ford's Theater. Uh, If you visit Ford's Theater, which is closed for coronavirus, but hopefully reopening soon, Ford's Theater uh, has a great deal of information about Stanton, both in the theater's museum, which looks at Stanton's role in the cabinet, looks at his role during the Civil War, and then across the street at the Peterson Boarding House and Education Center, uh, information about Stanton's role with the assassination particularly and helping to capture the criminals involved in the crimes of April 14th, 1865. So two places for sure that you can get Stanton history. And of course, we talk about Stanton on a number of our tours, including Lincoln Assassination and our White House at Night tour. This has been another episode of Tour Guide Tell All. I hope that you have enjoyed uh, our little solo episode tonight. If you're having a good time, please be sure to review us on all of your podcast apps and subscribe if you don't already. And don't be afraid to share an episode. If you enjoy this, be sure to share it with friends. Uh, We are so, so grateful to our wonderful patrons who are out there supporting us. Our patrons make such a huge difference. We are still really impacted as an industry by coronavirus, and many of us are still out of work. So you're support um, as patrons really allows us to keep going and we're so thankful. If you are a patron right now, you are getting something really special, a discount to the brand new tour guide tell all store. That's right, guys. We have a store. Our store has accessories and clothing and stickers and a lot of really fun stuff. We have lines of products inspired by some of our favorite podcast subjects, including Alice Roosevelt Longworth, Inez Mulholland, Frederick Douglass, 
So if you're a patron, you get a special discount to the store. So if you've been waiting to become a patron, this is a really good time. Patrons also get access to special videos, virtual tours, and more. So if you want to get extra content, consider being a patron. Of course, anybody can shop at the store. I really encourage you to check it out. If you pick up a cool shirt or sticker or t-shirt or a tote or something else, be sure to take a picture and tag us. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Tour Guide Tell All. On Twitter, we're at Tour Guide Tell. Also, reach out. Let us know what you think of the episodes, ideas for the future, and uh, what you're looking forward to uh, with the rest of these episodes. We're open to suggestions, and we'd love to hear what you think. Thank you guys so much. Stay safe, and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.